for the interdisciplinary study of anti-Semitism. And today, as you know, it's Yom uh, Shoah, the day that we commemorate the Holocaust and also the people who resisted against the Holocaust. And um, I'm grateful for, the, for those of you who have come here, and I'm grateful for our two uh, speakers, and we're really honored that they're here. As many of you know, these days, in terms of anti-Semitism, are serious. The, the, there's been left, uh, reports that just came out, actually by the State Department, and also by Tel Aviv University and other organizations, and reports from around the world show that 2009 was one of the most uh, bad years, in quotations, for uh, anti-Semitic incidents uh, since World War II, since the Shoah. So this is a time when we really, I think, need to take stock, as we do uh, during Pesach, about notions of freedom and taking stock of where we are uh, in the world. And certainly in terms of anti-Semitism, we really need to understand the new forms of anti-Semitism, the modern contemporary context of anti-Semitism, as we commemorate uh, the Holocaust. And today, as we speak, as uh, many of you know, in Washington, there are representatives from nations from throughout the world meeting today to discuss the question of nuclear arms and uh, the possibility of rogue states or terrorist organizations acquiring uh, weapons of mass destruction, which unfortunately is also perhaps the elephant in the room, or it's, it's certainly in the backdrop of our discussions today as we commemorate the Holocaust. So today we're really fortunate to have two uh, outstanding women who are really, in a sense, uh, leaders in the contemporary fight and struggle against anti-Semitism. And as you'll hear, a person who survived uh, the Shoah, who is also uh, still, in a sense, uh, I don't know how to sum up these words, I heard her speak in Stanford, and you'll see she has a spirit that uh, transcends the, uh, the hatred that we're here to commemorate. The first speaker will be Stella Bengal. She's a survivor from, she was born in Vienna in Austria. And when we met, we were discussing, this is where my mother's father came from. He was from Vienna. She grew up in Vienna and beginning in 1938, at the age of 11, she witnessed the rise of Hitler's regime and the Nazi regime in, in Vienna. And this affected her family and her family's uh, livelihood. Her family's, her father's store was uh, taken over by the Nazi regime. Uh, Stella's father was taken to Dachau where he was murdered. And her mother was sent to three different concentration camps including Auschwitz. Mrs. Bengal came to the United States, uh, survived the, the Holocaust and she arrived in 1940. During the last 20 years and more, she has lectured throughout the country at synagogues, at schools, and in universities throughout the United States as well as in Europe. And in 2008, she made a, a trip back to Vienna where she actually addressed the government to discuss her experience um, as an Austrian citizen. And she'll speak to us today about her experience. We're also really privileged to have Hannah Rosenthal, who's the ambassador uh, or the representative of the State Department. So she's a special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. She's been appointed by the new Obama administration. Um, and we met in Jerusalem at the Global Forum on Anti-Semitism, where she speaks as, uh, she's outspoken and fights against anti-Semitism uh, throughout the world. 
She, um, she was, before taking this position, the Community Relations uh, Vice President for the Nonprofit Physicians Service and Insurance Corporation in Madison, Wisconsin, which focused on health, health care and policy issues and prevention. She was the Executive Director for the Chicago Foundation for Women. She was also the Executive Director for the Jewish Council for Public Affairs and worked on domestic and international policy for the Organized Jewish Community of North America. From 1992 to 2000, she was with the Clinton administration and she was the Midwest Regional Director of the United States Department of Health and Human Services. And she was active on the Clinton Gore campaign in 92 and again 96. Um, she was educated at the School of Rabbinical Studies at Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem and in Los Angeles. And she has a bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin. So it's really an honor that you're here with us as well. So the way it's going to work is Stella Bengala will speak uh, first, and then Ambassador Rosenthal will speak, and then I will come with some short remarks to the end to sum up uh, the debate. So this is going to
teachers were accepted. Well, we lived alone and struggled and did our best. There were synagogues, we went to synagogues, we went to schools, but I never felt very comfortable. Finally, in 1938, March 14, overnight, Hitler marched in into Vienna, Austria with his army. The next day I went to school, the teacher said, Jewish children, back of the room. So we went back of the room till a bit there will find a building where Jewish children could go to school. Well, we were struggling along. My father was still conducting his business. The synagogues were still open. Children 
and they couldn't fit in so many children. So we went every other day to school. Well, on the 10th of November, 1938, my father took me to school and he kissed me goodbye. And that's when I saw him the last time. I didn't know from anything. All of a sudden, when, when my school was finished to go home, my mother picked me up and says, you know what? My, my father was taken away from his business. Two police officers came and took him in the middle and cuffed his hands and took him away. Where he is, is somewhere at a police station. I let's go home and have lunch. We went home, tried to have lunch. There was a knock on the door. You have to go out of your house. So my mother said, what do you mean I have to go out of my house, our apartment? We need your apartment. You have to go next door to two families together in one apartment. My mother said, I can't do that. I cannot move that fast. We're gonna help you move. Oh, they helped them. the Nazi helped us move. Ah. Oh. So we moved in and then they want the key from the apartment. You know, my mother said, I don't wanna give you the key, I wanna keep it. If you don't give me the key, we take you to the concentration camp. So we moved in as fast as possible. Gave them the key. They had the apartment for the key. So we were sitting next to our neighbor and they put beds up even in the kitchen. I was, I was screaming. 
this. Oh, there was a security lock because there were fur coats in there. They didn't know how to handle it. So I went down with my mother to the business and she had to open with the security lock the business and then they took everything out on the street, all the merchandise. They hired, they took down all the shillers, all the names and hired a truck to go back and forth, back and forth to, to rip off the names of the shit of the shingles. He had untapped shingles and pictures of Fargoat. The truck smashed it all up. And I start crying. We have no home, no business, and where is my father? Okay, we slept in the neighbor's house. Then my mother said, you know what, we're going to, to the Gestapo. The Gestapo was only like a three-quarter walk. We went to the Gestapo and there was an SS man in black uniform and we asked, where are all the men? up today and the guy and the man says we don't know then we took a walk home and we passed a police station and we saw traps a lot of traps oh there's something going on they're gonna take them to the railroad station, to the concentration camp. Okay, we went home, and the next morning, we went to the Jewish community. And my father was very, very active in the Jewish community. There was a big speaker all the men who were taken to the concentration camp are in Dachau, near Munich. And we're going to send them food packages. And they will write home every two weeks. Well, it was a very, very tough time. Finally, we got a letter from Dachau. My father writes, writes, and he thought he still has his business. And he told my mother, this certain codes belong to certain people because people had all kinds of repairs and new codes. And we wrote back to him, but we, we couldn't write back to him what happened. So we exchanged 
every two weeks a letter. And January 20, uh, 
came through from 36 children. Well, we, many times we had meetings how we going to arrange uh, the trip and there was a psychologist and he, he talked with us and he asked me Eight years old, old and uh, 
and the oldest one was 15. And I was in the middle, 13. So we went in a shelter and we went to different offices and then checked the paper and then we went to the trains and met our nanny and our next stop was Paris and that was the border and we were very very afraid of the border we had to take our suitcases out and the SS was standing there and gave them up the papers and looked in the suitcases, but somehow they took papers away from me, and somehow I was my birth certificate I was hiding, I didn't give it to them. Then our next stop was Spain, and there we stood three days and the doctor looked us over. Then, in, then the nanny stood with us. Then we had to go to Lisbon and made 10 days till the ship came. We went to a port. We were picked up by the Jewish community of Lisbon and they put us in a boarding house and the nanny went to a hotel. So they gave us the address where we have to come in the evening and have dinner and they gave us some money to have breakfast and lunch and the two oldest ones, Susan and Arthur, about 15 and 16 years old, they had the money and they paid for it. <laughs> so actually for 10 days we were on our own. We didn't see the money. After 10 days, the Jewish community picked us up
uh, I never went to the dining room. I just left from fruit and desserts. <laughs> so we went 10 days till we passed Bermuda somehow and they checked the papers again. Oh, 
You know what? I have friends right in the neighborhood where no relatives live. I will go over and talk to them. Oh, oh, this is really nice. I thanked him. And the next day I was sitting around. All of a sudden the receptionist called me. You know, your family is here. Oh, I was so happy. But I was all knocked out from, from the trip and then I see my relatives. And I said, oh, I'm so happy to see you all. So they told me it will take a few days till you can come to your family. There is a lot of paperwork. Okay, I stood there a few days and then my uncle came and took me to his home. And my aunt and my little cousin. Finally, I went to school and took out easy books. I had a teacher who took, uh, spoke a little German, so he uh, taught German with him, and I learned English. Uh, on the street with children and I went to high school and I found out after the war that I don't have a mother anymore. The Jewish community got in touch with me and said my mother and my grandmother was taken to Theresienstadt concentration camp. That's all I knew. I didn't have much hope that this was still alive. Then uh, I, uh, I got, I went to school, I went to business school, and I got married, and uh, I, I had my daughter, and she grew up to a nice lady, and now I have two grandsons, and I'm a great-grandmother. <laughs> and two years ago, I got a letter. I'm invited to Austria, Vienna, Austria. And I said, oh, I, 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 I don't think I want to go. It's too, too many problems. I don't, I don't think I want to see the people. And as the people, as I talked with people, they said, look, go. It's a different generation, and, and a different government, go. And finally, 
day. She had all everything down. Finally, we arrived in Vienna and they put us in a hotel. But in the meantime, I had a student from Innsbruck, that's the ski resort, who took my story and made research about my mother. <coughs> so they came from Innsbruck on a Sunday and I went in touch with them. We all went in touch and I found out that my mother and my grandmother were in three concentration camps in Theretienstadt, in in Auschwitz and in Hofbau, I don't know where that is, I think Germany, and they gave me the exact date when she died. How the Nazi must have kept up everything in the books, I don't understand. Uh, I did a lot of speaking with students and I, I went right to the point with them. I said, you had grandparents. Did your grandparents say anything? How, how Austria was years ago? They said, no, they never talked to us. Well, things were very bad. And uh, there was another group who came from Salzburg and they made reports what happened. So they came back. I had a professor from Innsbruck and spoke and a professor from Salzburg. And they all made reports. The professor from Vienna sent two students to me to make reports what was going on. So I took them out for lunch and they made a report about my life. They took me to the cemetery where my father uh, was buried. I fixed up the grave. Um, because it was in bad condition. And to calm me down, I took a course on the Danube with my sister-in-law. Then it came Friday night, and on Friday night there was one synagogue left that didn't destroy because non-Jewish people lived next to it. So I went Friday night to the synagogue. And believe me, there were trucks and, and policemen with machine guns standing. And I had to show my passport. And in the synagogue, the rabbi spoke English, and he welcomed 
the old children. <laughs> After that, they invited us for a Shabbos dinner, a yeshiva, and and the uh, there were all kinds of speakers. The rabbi was Hasidic, and he was singing songs very beautiful. And there was one day we went to the parliament, and we met all the politicians. We met the councillor of Vienna and other politicians. And then they took us outside, they call it the Helgenplatz. There were all chairs for us to sit down on other politicians talk to us. And we were protected by police with machine guns. And, and they apologized what happened. They said, well, it's a new generation. It's a new government. Now, when I went to the synagogue again, we went to a, a cafe. And when I looked around, oh my God. There was sitting Judenplatz, means Jew straight, and I got the shapes. It's still there, huh? They have a new generation, and they have a, a new government, and they're still Judenplatz. Oh, that's terrible. We went back. We went back.
very much, Mrs. Mangle, and uh, I think uh, thank you for sharing your story with us and to come all the way to New Haven to be with us. We really appreciate it. I think you remind us who are studying anti-Semitism and people like uh, Ambassador Rosenthal who are engaged in policy and anti-Semitism. I think you remind us uh, what, what we're supposed to be doing and you remind us of uh, of our mission. So thank you very much for sharing your, your experience. I also mentioned to thank the ADL and the Federation for co-sponsoring this event with ESA uh, today. Talk about mixed emotions. Um, as we, every year, revisit officially Holocaust and Yom HaShoah. We tend to look at the darkness, the reality that human beings could do this, that in fact cultured people built efficient death factories, and sometimes we need to be reminded of the incredible courage and example you give us, Stella, for your survival, for your willingness to tell your story, for your smile when you tell parts of it, for your righteous indignation that you still have. And um, I'm really quite humbled to have been sitting here listening to you and to have to follow you. Um, <coughs> I am an extremely lucky person. In my life, I have been raised with the Holocaust. We share something, Stella. I'm the child of a survivor, and you're a child survivor of people who did not. I was raised in a family from as early as I can remember. We were talking about the Holocaust. My father was a rabbi. And so he had a platform to talk about it in his sermons each week. He had, he had been incarcerated in Buchenwald, um, but um, actually got out, as in many cases, because of the goodness of a Lutheran minister in Heidelberg, Herman Maas, who helped Dad get out with a fake visa and a fake pulpit and a fake paper to come to the United States uh, because, of course, we weren't accepting people also in 1940 unless they had a place, unless they had relatives, unless they had a position. Um, and I stand before you as someone, even though I was raised with the stories, and even though I knew how small my family was, my family reunion could fit at this table with an empty chair, even though I had that in my entire consciousness, I never really could fathom what you went through and what my dad went through. And at one point in my life, I thought I understood. You know that thing that happens when you go from teenage to early 20s when you are sure you know it all? <laughs> And I decided I knew everything there was to know, and now I was going to pick apart my father's psychology of survival. 
And so I confronted him and I said, Dad, I hear you each Friday night and Saturday talk about compassion, talk about reaching out, of building bridges. How did you come out of this experience as the only survivor in your entire family with any degree of sanity? And how did you deal with the guilt of being the only survivor? And he said to me, Hanullah, I survived to have you. And so he took that guilt off of his shoulder and put it on mine. And I have been motivated with a degree of mishkas and yet unbelievable passion that only my dad could instill in me. And that is why I think I'm the luckiest person because in my life, at this point in my life, I've been given an opportunity to work with in government of a superpower that is dedicated to focusing on eradicating anti-Semitism. Now, as I was saying to Charles before, all my life I've been an advocate. And that means I'm pushing. And I'm constantly pushing people until my bill is passed, until the law is enforced, until my issue has been reconciled. It's always been on some human rights issue. And now I'm learning a new discipline. I am a diplomat. And it takes a different kind of skill set and a different kind of language. I am now about recognizing the importance of baby steps and the importance of speaking so that somebody can hear me. And that's the new discipline. I'm five months, really four and a half months into the job, and I'm still learning it. I come before you as the new special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. I work in the State Department. The position was created in 2004 by Congress, and so I'm the second person to hold this job. And the job has been elevated and integrated into the entire workings of the State Department. And what I mean by that is the position is actually moved inside the State Department, right down the hall from Secretary Clinton. I work in a bureau of fabulous professionals, many Foreign Service officers who have lived in many countries and have never, ever been asked before, how are the Jews? How safe did they feel? How secure did they feel? Did you talk to survivors? How's the restitution going? And I feel like just asking those questions to people who are regularly and professionally adept at dealing with diplomacy, asking those important questions is an integral part of my job. By moving my position into the State Department, right down the hall from the Secretary, it has not only elevated my position, but it's integrated it into everything. One of the things that the State Department does, particularly the Bureau that focuses on human rights abuses every year, 
we issue two reports. One is International Religious Freedom, and the other is the Human Rights Report. It was just released three weeks ago. And it is a gold standard, frankly, for the world, on how we report human rights abuses in 194 countries. And this year, every single one of the countries that we report on were asked to report on incidents of anti-Semitism and the response the government had. We depend on our em embassies around the globe. That's their job, to be the United States' eyes and ears. Sometimes they report things. Sometimes I have to ask them about things. But they are being sensitized to the facts that anti-Semitism, unfortunately, is alive, well, and kicking, and sometimes in their neighborhood. And so for the first time, the 2009 human rights reports have embedded in them reports on all the countries and anti-Semitic incidences and responses. And this is, it's not perfect, but it is a huge step forward. Countries all over the world use our human rights reports. Non-governmental organizations around the world use our human rights reports. Other countries use our methodology and some of our reports to report to their constituencies and their governments what's going on. And so I'm very proud to be embedded right in the State Department, in the nerve center, where strategies are being contemplated and developed and where policies are being discussed. And I'm allowed to be at the table and ask these very pointed and poignant questions. 2009 was not a good year. As Charles um, indicated, we saw um, by many reports the, mo the most incidences in 2009, globally, of anti-Semitism since World War II. It isn't World War II. It isn't 1939. But there were spikes all across the world. We saw spikes in Australia, in France, in Jordan, in Ukraine, in Russia, in South Africa, where there were Jewish communities and where there were not Jewish communities. We saw incidences spike. And it would be improper for me not to point out that the spike in the incidences happened in January, right after the Gaza um, war happened. And the result of that around the world was translated into Jew hatred on the ground. A very, very um, depressing reality. My job is to, in Ellie Wiesel's words, we have to create sparks in our hearts out of the ashes. And my job is to work within a system and a bureaucracy that has heard huge numbers, six million. The number we all have embedded in our brains that sometimes is just too enormous 
to translate into reality. And so some of my job is not just to translate the enormity of the Holocaust, but the individual stories that happen today. To translate the experience Stella had and say the motivations that took her father away, the motivations that slaughtered her mother, have not been adequately addressed in this world. And we as a superpower that use our moral authority, that use our laws, that use our diplomacy, and our money have to be used to also address that reality. So elevating and integrating my position has been my challenge. And how do I do this? My title is really a mouthful. I'm the Special Envoy to Monitor and Combat Antisemitism. The two verbs, very important. Monitoring, I mentioned the reports. But it also means that every single day, unfortunately, I am checking a classified drive at my computer, my BlackBerry, even this morning while I was waiting for the program.